0: Chapter 11, the Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people, that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land." So after nine plagues, God is still here giving Pharaoh an opportunity to let his people go. After nine plagues, he continues showing his grace to Pharaoh who over successive plagues has continued to harden his heart towards him. The grace that God bestows upon Pharaoh in these moments is is mind-blowing to me. But I, I like tying this to what Landon ended with last week because it was a warning to all of us that if we are intent on being opposed to what God's trying to do, how he's trying to reach us, and we are hardening our hearts, at some point that grace ends. There's a finality, an absolution to all of it, all of this. And yet, he still prophesies that this is going to be ignored. The grace, the the favor that that he's trying to give to Pharaoh, even to his people, is going to be ignored. Remember um, in Exodus 3, uh, when Moses was at the burning bush, God told Moses this was going to happen. Your people are going to be set free, but Pharaoh's going to refuse and, and is going to come down to this final judgment. Not only that, but he told them that they're going to take all this stuff from the Egyptians. And, and moreover, the Egyptians are going to like give it to them. They want to give it to them freely, favorably. They just want to give them all these valuable things. So only a, a, a couple years before this, There was prophecy, but if you guys remember back in Genesis 15, God also prophesied this to Abram when he said, uh, uh, so in in Genesis 15, 12 through 14, it says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So all those years before he prophesied that this was going to happen, and we're at that cusp right now, he knew back then that Pharaoh was going to harden his heart to this point, that, that no amount of grace shown to him was going to be accepted. At the same time, he's showing favor to Israel. What did Israel do to deserve this? Nothing. They didn't have to work. They didn't have to labor. God didn't tell them, do X, Y, and Z. If you only do this so well, then I'll show you a favor. No, he redeemed Israel through grace alone. No works. So we see this, this dichotomy of, of affliction on, on the Egyptians and grace being tr- trying to be showed on the Egyptians, but, but just abounding on Israel. And we see this, this idea that, that oh, if, you, um, if these things happen in your life, they must happen for a reason, right? But sometimes we miss that reasoning. Because I, I, I lived a good chunk of my life, like I said before, as a hypocrite and, and a horrible sinner before I realized the grace that God was trying to show to me. So I guess my proposal on this is that whether they're blessings or whether they're afflictions in your life, the point is that God is trying to bestow his grace upon you, just like he tried to do with Pharaoh over 10 plagues. He could have at any moment struck Pharaoh down. He had every right to. He was disobedient. He was a sinner. He deserved hell. He could have just struck them down, and he didn't. At any point, he could have given up on Israel and moved on, chosen somebody else, and he didn't. He chose them for a reason. Some say that the plagues lasted uh, anywhere from 40 days to 12 months. I don't know how long they lasted. We only have like little snippets of how long each plague lasts. Like, the first one lasted seven days, it says. After that, it's kind of up in the air. But think of, think of all these things that they were going through over and over and over again, the annoyance and the calamity and the destruction. And, and yet they lived through all this, and they didn't give God the praise that he wanted. And that leads me to my point, all these wonders and signs that he bestows on Israel and he bestows on us right now, like I think of like the book of Acts with all these, these blessings and the healings and the, 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 the lame walking and, and the sick being healed, the demon possessed being cast out and freed, as well as all the afflictions in our lives, all the hardship that we face, it comes back to his grace. And the point is that God is glorified in it. Every time you read in the book of Acts where there's some kind of healing, when somebody that that was persecuting Christ's body comes to know him, is poured out as praise to God, So regardless of whether we are afflicted or we are blessed if we lose sight of what the point is that God is to be glorified and praised above all else regardless of of whether we're going through very hard things or whether we are just being poured out upon in his loving mercy and grace he deserves praise. And Through all of this, especially in the the plague story and and culminating in in the firstborn dying, that's a huge thing in Egypt especially for for a kingship, for a kingdom. The firstborn dying was a huge deal. So regardless of of any of that, if we're not turning it back to him for praise, we're failing. And this is is proof of of Romans 8.28, right? Because we know that that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things. All the afflictions, all the hard things, but all the really good things, too. All of it. God's heart was after the people of, of Egypt, too, not just Israel. We'll get to that a little bit. So we have a choice here between hard and soft. I like soft-boiled eggs, by the way. That just came to my mind. <laughs> um, but we have a choice between hard and soft when it comes to our heart, right? I heard uh, Adrian Rogers um, give a, a tell a story fairly recently. I mean, he's been with Jesus for a while, but listened to him on the radio. And um, he said that there was a, a preacher. And uh, there was a gentleman, that, a young man, that kept coming to his church. And this guy would recognize this man uh, over and over again. And he used to sit up way up high on the balcony. And he said, he never talked with him at all. And uh, he, uh, the preacher did a, an altar call one day, and he could tell that there was conviction in this man. He could, he could see the tears streaming down his face. He could see that, that there was like an eagerness there. After he stopped preaching, the guy got up, left, walked out. A couple weeks later, uh, the preacher was called and said, this young man's dying. He has terminal illness, and so he went to visit him. And he, he brought this up to him. He said, why, why, did, why did you leave? Like, I saw that there was conviction there. I saw it. And he said, Pastor, I, I, I wanted to just jump down over that balcony and come down and receive Jesus right there. But I couldn't because the only thing I kept thinking about were all the things I loved to do, all the things that brought me pleasure, that brought me value in my life. I thought of all that stuff and, and I realized Jesus was asking me to hang up all that stuff and get, get rid of it all and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I, I, I refused and so I left. And The pastor said, you, you, you realize that you, you are dying right now, right? Like you, you know this. He's like, yeah, I know. It's been a couple of weeks I've known, I've dealt with this. You still have a chance, he says. You can accept Jesus right now. Right now. He said, no. I made up my mind that day. I don't want Jesus. I I know that he's true. I know that what he says is real. I know that he died for me, but I don't want it. I'd rather have my sin. Even the fear of death isn't enough for some people. Even the fear of final judgment isn't enough for some people. When we get into the hardness of heart, we have our hearts made of stone, and we don't want to get rid of it for whatever reason. But this this warning is, is for everybody, whether you know Jesus now or maybe you don't. But we have a choice to harden or soften our hearts. It says that that God gives us it takes our heart of stone, Ezekiel says this, takes our heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. When that conviction overcomes you, you turn to the Lord and you allow him to have his work, uh, however painful it is, whatever affliction that you, you may be going through, whatever blessings he's given you, you turn to him. All these other things in chapter 11, we're going to get to later, because God likes to repeat himself sometimes. All right. Let's go to chapter 12. We're going to, so these, there's like five sections that I'm doing here, guys, okay? This is the first one. We got rid of the first one already, so we're, we're doing okay. Next section, verses one through six. This is what I like to call new life. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So right here, God says immediately, right out of the gate, this is a new start for you. You had your calendar, you counted your days and weeks and years before, but now we're going to do things differently. So what was has now passed and what God is wanting to do is now coming and he marks this all by starting a brand new calendar and saying this calendar I'm creating for you because it marks your deliverance, right? The mode of that deliverance is this lamb here. Now tell me that's not crazy. (laughs) Like you got to be thinking, these Israelites are like, "Hmm, okay. But, but you did all these nine plagues, so we're still listening. So <clears throat> there's, three, there's three parts here to this mode of deliverance that, that I want to touch on. The first part is that it's sufficient. You catch that there is no situation where the lamb uh, uh, could be, um, or there, there is a situation where the lamb could be too large, right? So, hey, if you have this lamb and, you sac- and you're going to sacrifice it for your family, hey, if your neighbor over there, like the widow next door or the, the, the crippled guy across the street, uh, they're just living by themselves, invite them over too, right? So then you can all partake of it together. And, and you get the lamb that, that, that is the lamb, and then you bring other people in to fill out what the lamb can provide, right? But it's never too small. We don't run across this example. Oh, well, if it's too small, then you can get two lambs, right? No, it's only ever one. That lamb is sufficient. It's also innocent. It's in the first year, a yearling, right? So you think this little baby lamb, like we have a puppy at home right now. It's like 14 weeks, I think. Yep, 14 weeks. That's a small animal. And you're trying to envision what it looks like when it's older. When you have a little baby thing, it's like, oh, it's so cute. So, so it's small. It's innocent. You think of a a, a child. It's small, innocent. It's done nothing, right? But not only that, it's free of defect. There's no corruption. in It doesn't have a. It doesn't have three legs. It doesn't have one eye. It doesn't like. It, it is a perfect, complete specimen of what that lamb should be. The last part is is to be akin. What I mean to that by that is that it is to be with us and like us and a part of us. So remember, God started this, this whole calendar, right? And then he said, on the 10th day of that calendar, um, you're going to go out and find a lamb that fits your household and, and, and whoever else may join in, and you're going to bring it into your house, and for the next four days, that lamb's going to live with you. So if anybody's had kids and you bring home, like, I don't know, a pot-bellied pig or something, are you going to make bacon out of that after four days? Probably not. I mean, maybe I would, but probably not. That's a hard bond to break. So we have this idea that the lamb's invited in, that the lamb is a part of our family for for these four days. You're living with it. Your kids are playing with it. It's cute and fluffy, and it, it, it smells great, even though it's an animal. Right? I don't know what lambs smell like. Puppies smell good, though. (laughs) Yeah, musky, okay. Um, But but the point here is that that you're living with this thing. It's a part of your family for those four days. And I also like this connection. So we're we're, we're connecting a lot of these things to Jesus right now. You guys realize that. We're connecting a lot of these things to who Jesus is, the type of life that he lived, and, and what he embodied here on earth. And I like this connection because four days before Jesus' Passover supper and betrayal, what did he do? What was he doing? What happened? The triumphal entry, right? He comes in and he dwells in Jerusalem in the holy city of God for four days. And some of his best parables, some of his best teachings happen in those four days. So if, if you, we, don't have, we don't have any time to get into this, but Matthew 21 through 25 is our uh, great chapters to read if you want to see what Jesus did after he came back into Jerusalem after the triumphal entry. But he dwelt with them there in Jerusalem. The other thing I want to point out here is the importance of the family unit. You guys see, it's, the, the, the lamb was brought into a household, into a family. The only exceptions for this was the inclusion of smaller units. Like I said, the, the widow next door, or the, the, the crippled guy across the street, you weren't to include them in. So it's, it's also inclusive. So family extends beyond what our immediate family is. But, but we're talking about a family unit. And within that family unit, God, God has given an order to a home, right? We're told elsewhere that, that the man is over uh, uh, the woman, which both are over the children, right? But who's above the man? God. Yeah. So there's an order here. And I really truly believe that that the reason for this order was was to break down the unit of humanity to a a small enough uh and manageable enough concept for or for our feeble futile minds to comprehend of how to be fruitful for God. We have the family unit, and we have children, and we have people that are that are running around in our house that we need to manage and that we need to lead and, and steward. And God provides that. And so what's the first thing that we should be teaching our household? What's the, what's the first way that we should be, be instructing them to live? Say it, Bruce, I know you know it. Holy, holy like Jesus is holy, right? So the emphasis here is on the, the family unit, the solitary household. The last thing I want to point out here is that the lamb, how many lambs are there that's being slaughtered? One per household, One per household right? But if you read the text, and if, my, my study indicates that after it says that each household will take a lamb, every time it refers to the lamb, it refers to it in the singular. That's grammatically incorrect. Shouldn't we be saying, y'all take all your lambs and do this? We, sh- we should be saying that. If we want to abide by, by grammatical sense. But that's not the point here. The point here is that this is corporately separate. The lamb that's in each one of our houses is being used in a corporate sense, signifying the, the oneness of the, what the sacrifice means. So there's no plurality in, in this scripture, and in fact, the ESV here is, is a little misleading in verse 6 because it says that uh, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, but the word lambs isn't actually in the Hebrew. The ESV translates it this way to, to bring some clarity to what they're talking about, because when you're not speaking grammatically correct, it's hard to keep things straight sometimes. And so the ESV takes liberty there to say, you're going to kill the lambs instead of it, which I think is what the NKGV says. So it is always singular. It's talking about one thing. Again, the the slaughter of the lamb was to be corporately separate. All right, let's move on. We're flying, guys. This is great. All right, the next uh, section. Verses 7 through 13, I call this the covering, the feast, and the flight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted over fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. All right. First thing I want to touch on here is is the covering of blood. It's supposed to be put on the doorway, the lintel at the top stretches across the opening, the two doorposts that run down the side. It, in, in most houses back then, this is like the only way to enter and exit a house, right? They didn't have back doors. They didn't have side doors. They didn't have the garage door. This is the only way. So by signifying this, there, there, there is a, a concept of a gateway here. We, we bring the lamb in. We have our feast here inside of our house. And what is God preparing them to do after they feast? Travel. Leave, right? Travel. So all of them corporally again, but separate, flee out that door. And what are they supposed to put on that door? Blood. So you imagine this: they're painting, and they're doing the top, and then they come down and they do each side, just like a cross. It's not like our doorways where we have them like nice and trimmed. If we take all that away, I guarantee there's a header right behind that, that plaster. And, and if you compare that to the, the door frame itself, there's a cross behind that, that wall. So we're painting this blood in the shape of a cross on the doorway that they now have to exit to flee. How final is that? There's one. There's one way out. That's, that's finality. This Passover meal and and the the uh, all that it entails, really. This is a prelude to their freedom. And that's the gateway through which they must pass into deliverance. There's no other option. This uh, word for covering here is actually the Hebrew word pasha and this is a neat thing because uh, in most Hebrew words, there's like root words that are connected to it. But the word pasha doesn't have a root word in Hebrew, and like from what I read, the scholars are like, "This is weird." Like usually, that's not the case. So they trace it back, and and they can find they can actually find an Egyptian word uh, pesh that they can link it to, and that word pesh in Egyptian means to spread the wings over. So if you think about that, that blood over that doorway, the wings of the Lord spread, or the sacrifice, really, of the Lord spread over each household, welcoming them out, covering them with his protection as that that angel of of death is is coming to and fro, looking to see that mark. Let's move on to the Feast of the Lamb. There's three elements here. We have the lamb, right? We know that. We have the unleavened bread, introduced for the first time. And we have these bitter herbs. How was the lamb supposed to be prepared? Roasted. roasted. I love roasted meat. Yeah. It's good stuff. That roasting, that over fire, over flame, that's judgment, folks. Jesus bore the full wrath of God on the cross all the judgment that's meant for us. And we're covered when he has our wings spread over us and we allow him to show grace to us through that, through his son, through his sacrifice. That judgment, that wrath passes over us. It's not meant for us anymore. The unleavened bread. There's no yeast in that bread. It's flat and hard probably. You guys ever eat that? We had some. We had some here for Passover meal um, a couple months ago. Uh, we used to make it when I celebrated Passover, and um, it it's okay, right? You can add things to it to make it flavorful, like garlic and onions and some herbs or something. But the bread itself is is not very. It's not very palatable just by itself. It's just mm, okay. Yeah, that leaven adds something to it. It's tasty. It's pleasurable, right? that leaven here signifies sin that bread was supposed to signify a life of sinlessness just like the lamb had no blemish no defect Jesus died unjustly he was sinless nowhere can we find any example of him doing anything outside of the law everything he did was according to his father's law uh 1 Corinthians 5 says that um, we should cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump of dough, Paul's saying, as you really are unleavened. We should be sinless. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So, all this old leaven, do you guys, you guys ever make Amish friendship bread? Is that, is that a thing here? I grew up in Pennsylvania. I, I don't know. W- what we did was <clears throat> you had like friendship bread where it was like one batch of dough and you, you break it apart and you pass it along. And so the same bread that was made probably 25 years ago is still going on in some fashion because little elements of that pre- that first original batch is still out there, right? So they did the same thing because they didn't have refrigerators back then, Right. They didn't have a way to store their yeast so it wouldn't get moldy and, and go bad. So they just kept the dough continuing, right? But God's saying no, get rid of all that stuff. It's all bad. It's old and stale and, and you have you, you run the risk of, of it infecting you. So get rid of it all. We're going to start new. just like the months are new, just like the calendar's new, this is new too, all right? <clears throat> Lastly, we had the bitter herbs, and this signifies the reality of hardship. We already talked about the afflictions in life, but but there's a difference between, uh, uh, I believe, between affliction and suffering. I kind of talked about this last year when I when I talked about First um, Peter chapter two, the 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 reality of just and unjust suffering and what that is. But we have hardship. We're told that in this Christian life, it's a simple message, but it's it's difficult to live out because we are guaranteed hardship. So so is that not signifying also Jesus? Did he not drink a bitter cup? Yeah. Yeah, it was gall. The the meat was not supposed to be boiled, right? No. All complete together, head, innards, all the organs. Roast it all. Roast it all. I think what this signifies, guys, is that it's just Jesus. It's just the sacrifice. We don't add anything to it. It's not a sprinkling of anything else. It's not It's not a, a submerging of anything else. It is Jesus and him crucified, as Paul says. So So, we can't separate him from any other part of him. If, we, if you want Jesus, you've got to accept all of it fully. And so all of these items that we're talking about, the, the lamb roaster over the fire, the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, these all were on the same plate together, probably in the middle of their table. All mingling, all these things are together. There's an intimate connectedness to all of these things. And it's characterized in oneness. Spurgeon has a quote about this, too says, the Passover lamb was not killed in order to be looked at only. He didn't just make the table with all this stuff and then just sit there and admire it. But to be eaten. And our Lord Jesus Christ has not been slain merely that we hear about him and talk about him and think about him, but that we may feed upon him. It's not, it's not just for show, guys. This is real. This is something that, that was really important to... To the Lord to hand down in this way. All right, last part the flight. How are they supposed to eat their food? Fast. fast. He said, Put your shoes on, tie them tight, put your belt on, get all your stuff on there, pack your bags, we're gonna go. Eat, your, eat it on the run. This is fast food. So, this experience of feasting on this lamb, of having the sacrifice so intimately close to us brought into our homes, this should lead us to a deeply rooted desire to depart our current dwellings. Remember, they're leaving. When we eat of it, when we eat of Jesus, when we know who he is, when we actually welcome him in with open arms fully and embrace him and take every part of him, whether we like it or not, and we embrace Him in that way, it should make us want to leave everything we've ever had. That's how it was for me. It doesn't mean that we stay there. It doesn't mean that those feelings and those emotions are always there, but it should make us want to depart and not go back. So where are we currently dwelling? Each of you, me too. Where are we currently dwelling? And where is God asking you to make your dwelling instead? I think, I think there's a spirit about right now, at least um, from what I can tell, that there's there's some change afoot. People being asked to, to be um, more than what they currently are. People being asked to be set in a different direction or in a different place than what they have been. And I think God is really gracious to continue renewing us in those ways too, not just from the start but repeatedly over and over. There's a daily occurrence of this in our lives. The last thing I want to note here is that who is the sign of the blood on the, on the doorpost for? Was it for the, the Lord? No, what does it say? Sorry, I lost my place. In verse 13, it says, the blood shall be a sign for you. Hey, you. You remember that they've already gone through nine plagues. Who did the nine plagues affect? Yeah, everybody. They affected everybody. But who were they actually affecting? Egyptians. The, Egyptians. the Egyptians. Yep, good job, Lennon. The Egyptians were the ones being affected. Israel had to live through it, right? But they weren't actually in it. They weren't, they weren't suffering the effects of it. So why does God now need a sign for himself who to pass over? He doesn't need that. All he wants to do is see the works of their faith in him. Because we know that, that his word says that any house that doesn't have that on it, I know you're not of me. I know, you, I know that you don't want true deliverance. I know that, that you would rather exists in all the calamities and all the afflictions that I just put into this world of yours because you want those things more. He's testing their faith. But that that blood was a sign for Israel. Just like the blood on that cross that we are washed in is a sign for us of our redemption. He merely looks on it for proof of their faithfulness to him. There's no sign required before until now, and this again speaks to the finality and absolution of the final judgment. It's This is it. This is what it all comes down to. 15 minutes. I'm going to roll. All right. Let's move on. This is the real meat of it. The memorial. Verses 14 through 28. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it As a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened, from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but... What everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this day, this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening." For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. All right, we get it. (laughs) Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. What are they supposed to get rid of first? 11. Eleven. We already said that this is this is sin, right? This is indicative of sin. The consequence of this, simply, you're going to get cut off, right? And this is very akin to what Jesus told us that we should do when we see a, a, uh, a brother or a sister in sin within the church, right? That This is the, the, the eventual leading uh, or, or finality of it. You're supposed to approach them one-on-one, reason with them, bring bring the word of the Lord to them. You're supposed to, then, if they don't listen, bring in another person to reason before the Lord. And if that doesn't work, you should bring the whole congregation to them, right? And if that doesn't work, cut off. The, the reason for that is because Jesus is saying the grace is shown over, over, over again. It's clear they want their sin. They don't want deliverance. That's the same thing here. The the unleavened bread is to be all they eat. All they eat for seven days. I think we're okay, dude. The other thing is, there's no work to be done, right? Not do any work. He's instating the Sabbath right here. And the reason for the Sabbath is, is to rest in Him, in His works, to trust in what He's done. It recalls in my mind what Jesus said on the cross, as He died, it is finished. It is finished. Again, finality. There's no more. Notice too, there's, there's one law. They're, they're welcoming the sojourner. They're welcoming the alien into their midst, bringing them in, saying, hey, you can partake of this too. Now later, we get to some requirements for that. There are requirements. God doesn't allow anybody in because if we allow anybody in, why not leave the leaven back in too? So it's an invitation to the outsider, but it's also a call for unity within the body. We're to be one. This is what unites us right here, exactly what we're talking about. This whole Passover thing is what unites us. And this is especially true within the family unit, our households, each individual one, but corporately together. I like too that that this is not just about deliverance, but it's about an arrival, right? Did you hear what, what he said that um mm-hmm-hmm. I lost my spot, but that's okay. He mentions the promised land, doesn't he? It's not just about them getting out of Egypt. It's about what he's calling them into. So God is preparing Israel for real, actual deliverance in the Passover process but he was also preparing them to arrive in what he was preparing. Way back when, when we read in Genesis 15 earlier of the promise to Abram, and he says, I'm going to bring you guys back into the same land that you're in right now, Abram. You're going to come back in here, and you're going, to, you're going to inherit all of this. So he's calling them into an inheritance here, again. This is the first time in, in this whole uh, uh, Passover story, Um, through all the plagues that he references this, before, up until now, it was always, well, I want you to go out from Egypt, You know, petition Pharaoh to let you guys go out of Egypt all together to worship me for three days, right? But now God's like, hey, by the way, you guys might be going out to worship for three days, but you're going to go over to Canaan and, and get your inheritance too. How cool is that? What we think is just a simple little thing that he's asking us to do is really this huge thing that he's giving us as a, an amazing blessing. Next thing i want to take note of is is the observance. Who who are the ones for later generations that are going to be asking about this thing that they do? The kids. Our children are going to be asking about this. Why are we doing this? This is so weird. Every year we take this lamb. We have to live with it for 4 days. Like nobody wants to kill this thing and then we have to kill it. And then we put this blood on a doorway? What is this? This is crazy. So we're supposed to be ready to give a reason for this stuff. Again, it's an emphasis on the family unit. It didn't say when your neighbor comes over and asks you, hey, what the heck are you guys doing? No, it's when your children ask you. So we're to be passing this down from one generation to another. The, the, I like what Steve said earlier about, about remembering and how, how I, I love that you said that, man, because this is exactly where I'm going here and why this memorial is so important. We forget too easily. We forget too easily. You guys know that, that by my count, there's only six recorded Passover celebrations in the Old Testament. Six. First one's here that we're reading. The inaugural one. The next one is the, next, is the year after when they're in the wilderness and they celebrate out in the desert. The third is in Joshua when they come into Canaan and take over the promised land. They, they celebrate by, by having Passover. Then it was Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, after he finds the, the, the books of the law after they were lost for God knows how long. Then it was King Josiah who was in a very similar case to Hezekiah. And then it wasn't until Ezra, the priest, coming back from Babylonian exile back into the land when they rebuilt the temple and reestablished the priesthood. So we have six. Some will say Solomon celebrated it, but from what I read, he just did the unleavened bread part. Nowhere does it say that he killed the lamb. It was the unleavened bread that he celebrated, at least from my reading. So we have six occurrences here in the Old Testament of the Passover itself actually being celebrated. Think about that. There's some notable people that that we're led to believe never celebrated the Passover. One, in my mind, is King David, the most righteous king in all of Israel. And we're not told that he ever celebrated the Passover. there's There's an ease to forget these things. God mentions in his word after Passover 56 times the phrase out of Egypt, as in I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. 56 times. Do You think this is important to him? He wants us to remember what he's done for us. So think about this in, in our own lives. We each were living a sinful life apart from God, destined to hell for all eternity. The final absolute judgment. All of us were. Until that moment, when we realized who Jesus was, what he was saying to us is true, and what it meant for our lives and and, and for, for his will to be done here on earth. And we gave it all up and accepted it. We said, It's not my way. I surrender, Lord. So, what are we telling our children, our families, about our own faith? About what the Lord's dragged us out of, where He's set us now. And how are we telling them? The words we use are really important. Not only that, how are we reminding ourselves of what God's done for us? Because it's easy to, to just say to other people sometimes, but it's really easy to forget ourselves. Like when we wake up in the morning, even if we're in, God's word every single morning. I know for me, it's hard to remember what He pulled me out of. I forget. My mind is feeble. It's weak. So, what are we doing to to help remind ourselves? I've talked in the past two times that I've I've taught here that uh, about re-evangelizing, and we're going to get to that in a second. But. Um, but re-evangelizing to ourselves, telling us, telling ourselves over again what God has done for us, who Jesus is, what what Jesus has done in our lives specifically. The end result of all of this right here, you guys notice in um, verse uh, 27 it says, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. They didn't even celebrate the Passover yet. This is just Moses saying, okay, now it's time to do it and they bowed their heads in worship. The, the whole point of this, like I said earlier, it, all the afflictions, all the blessings that we may see in our lives, is it, it's, it's to bring attention to his grace to us, to bring us into remembrance of all of this, and to praise him, to glorify him above all else. Um, this is the first time I'm doing this, but... Uh, can I get a couple guys to hand, hand out the... elements here and I think it's really cool to do communion together in in this sense because it's the Passover and we're told to uh, we're told even in communion to remember remember so um, as we're getting these handed out I want to recap with just several things that we're just talking about one we're to be set apart for sinlessness. This is what we call holiness. God has made us holy through his son, Jesus. And we can come into that. We, we are already into it. It's a matter of realizing it and actually embracing it, that holiness that he has. And, and we're not going to be perfect, but we are more and more each and every day being made like him. We're also supposed to rest on the cross, on that finished work. That takes trust, guys. The same trust that we had to put into him when we first believed. There's also a sense of fellowshipping. What we're doing right now, what we do after this, and, and that speaks to the unity in this body that we have, first in the family unit but larger than that corporately as a church body. It also speaks to this tension between the temporal of right here, right now, and the, the eternal, the future. And that you guys know what that's called? Hope, because we're existing right here, right now, and it's really hard sometimes. That hardship, that 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 cup of bitterness that that the Lord asks us to drink, in which He d- drank all those years ago, it, it it recalls these things. But we're to look forward into what He's done. It also r- reminds us to recall God. What is our testimony? If you're not sure what you're. If we're not sure what our testimony is, if you're not sure what your testimony is, I'd encourage you to give it some thought, prayerful thought. What what has God brought you out of? What has he made you into? And lastly, it's a worshipful remembrance. And this this is what I call glorifying. We're praising God's name. We're blessing it because of what he's done. So I'm going to pray, um, and then we'll take communion together. Lord, we do thank you for for doing all the work. Uh, You've asked nothing from us, nothing but an open heart, one that's softened by your graces and mercies and love and compassion upon us, that's softened to the point of surrender that this life is not about us, it's not about our script, our vision for this world, it's about you. And you paid that price on the cross. And, and this Passover story is just so, uh, so much of a foreshadow of all those things. Um, but Lord, you triumphed over that grave too. And that's where the true power lies, the power, your power, Manifested in, in the resurrection, Lord. So, Father, we ask that, that you bless these things to our hearts, that they are stored away there just like the, the law and the tablets and the, the staff and the manna were stored up in the ark, carried around before us. These things are of value. Lord, knit our hearts together and help us to serve you more. Pray this in Jesus' name. Last part, guys. We're doing pretty well. The fulfillment. Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. For the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in the cloaks of on their shoulders, the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about six hundred thousand men on foot, besides women and children. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the, night, of the land of Egypt. So this same night, in a night of watching, so this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, "This is a statue, statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is, brought, that is bought for money may eat of it." After you have circumcised him, no foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. So there's four responses here. The first one is from Pharaoh. And despite the nine afflictions that, that he and, and all the Egyptians went through um, over the, the preceding, I don't know how many days, months, weeks, whatever, It's this one that hits way too close to home, and it finally breaks through his heart of stone just a little bit, enough for the Lord to work. The death of the firstborn signified that his royal lineage was broken and misaligned. His inheritance that was going to be passed down to his generations was broken, It was also a dig at their god Osiris who was the god of life because here's the Lord saying I'm wiping out all the ones that that you find inheritance in. All of them. So Pharaoh in his god kingship because they believed that he was a god himself it came to an end there. I'm sure that he had other sons that that the, the kingship passed to. But this one was supposed to be his chosen one. That's the one that all of his stuff was going to go to, including his his authority. And note here, too, that Pharaoh agrees exactly to what God was originally asking for the whole time. Before it was, oh, go and do this part of it or go and do that part of it. But now he says, go and do all of it. Not only that, but I'm commanding you to go. I'm not just letting you, oh, yeah, in my niceties, I'm going to let you go. No, I'm commanding you, get out. I don't want you here anymore. And bless me, too, because this is horrible. The next is Egypt's response. They did this in fear. And they commanded them, them to leave too. They said, get out. We, we might be dead too if you stay here any longer. So they're finally afraid of death. But notice Israel and Moses are still favorable in their sight because they gave them all these things. And, and some people will say, oh, this is like Israel. like they, they stole from the Egyptians. They didn't steal anything. They went and they asked and it was freely given. And if you get to the Hebrew word here uh, uh, for, for what was going on, it conveys a sense of gifting. The Egyptians actually liked the Israelites in this moment, despite all that was happening. And they gave them their most precious possessions. So they plundered Egypt in that way. And, and if you think about it, in a way, it's, it's back payment for all those, those uh, uh, years of slavery that, that they were put through it was back payment the third response is israel's right so at this time it says that it says here that we know that there were at least 600,000 able-bodied men right these are like fighting guys that could have taken up arms if they absolutely needed to but that doesn't count the women and children that doesn't count the elderly That doesn't count this, and we'll get into this, this this mix of multitude. It doesn't count that. It's only 600,000 able-bodied men. So a a really conservative estimate that I read about said there's probably close to like 5 million people. And if you remember in in Exodus 1, it said that the people of, of Egypt were afraid of them. They were fearful of Israel because they were in bondage and they're like, hey, we better like, be nice to them because, or do something about this problem because what if they go to another country and they say, hey, we don't like our slavery anymore, and that nation comes against us, Egypt, and tries to free the Israelites? What if that were to happen? It would be horrible, so we better do something, put the hammer down on these guys. So they were fearful because they were outnumbered. There were more Israelites dwelling in the land of Egypt than there were Egyptians. That's terrifying if you're an Egyptian. Over the 431 years from the time that they went into Egypt to the time that they went out and then in numbers when they did the census, if you, if you factor about five million people that were coming out, that was, that was an annual growth rate of two and a half percent about, which is a heck of a lot higher than what we see here uh, in our country even. But like I lived in Utah for three and a half years. Those Mormons like to have babies that's, what I, that's one thing I learned about them out there. They love to have babies. Their growth rate, rate was like three times that of the national average, three times. But it still wasn't as fast as this. This was about double what you, the Utahns are going through right now. So think about that. But 430 years this is a long time, right? Like you could get to a, a few million people in that amount of time. So this is a huge number that's that's exiting in mass. But we have this this weird thing here the mixed multitude and in, in Hebrew it's erev rav and literally it means great rabble. So these are the same people that's referred to in numbers 11 um, when it, when um they were clamoring for meat in the desert after eating manna for how long? They they're clamoring for meat. These are the people that incited that whole thing. So so I find that Really interesting, because they were supposed to have the meat during the Passover and for the next forty years they're supposed to be given the daily bread why didn't they why didn't they remember the meat of the Passover it's also in Deuteronomy 29 after forty years of the desert they're still there the rabbles still there and uh, in Leviticus speaking of like uh, remember in Leviticus I don't know how many times people read Leviticus but um, the, the cloth, and you get mold in it and stuff, and it tells you what to do about that process, that infection, that corruption. And this warp and woof, I don't really know. I'm, I'm like learning this stuff as I go to. The warp and woof of the fabric, like you have the, the warp that's like these straight threads, but then you have the woof that zigzags back and forth. The woof, the word there, is the same Arab Rav. Isn't that crazy? So there's this thing that goes in and out to weave them together, but it's foundational, right? Clearly, the, there are some Egyptians or maybe other nationalities that, that did exactly what God told the Israelites to do. And they put their faith in the Lord. And they came out with them. Because they're still there after 40 years. And in Nehemiah 13, they're still there after the exile. They come, some of the Babylonians were welcomed into Israel after that time. So, so there's, this again, this sense of welcoming the outsider. Welcome them in. We have these things that are, that are outlined that they have to do, but, but don't you think that they, they had humble enough hearts, soft enough hearts, to accept what the Lord was doing? They, they believed. But it also speaks to the foundational issue here, that if the foundation gets compromised in some way, and this is what Leviticus talks about, there has to be something done about it. If it's impacting the things that are actually interwoven into our fabric, there's got to be something done about it. So beware as, as things from the outside, just like that leaven can infect us. The other thing is, they were told to keep, that, that they keep a vigil, a night watch, every Passover. And what that comes to mind is when Jesus, in Matthew 26, when he goes into the garden and he's praying all night long before he's betrayed and crucified, and he brings the disciples with him, and what, do the, what does he tell the disciples? Stay up, keep watch. And what do they end up doing? Sleeping three times. He passes them sleeping. They're sleeping on the watch. So the Passover is supposed to be observed. It's not supposed to be forgotten. So we have this this whole people and this multitude with them coming, mixed multitude coming. You guys remember when they went into Egypt, there were only 75 in Jacob's household. And now there's, there, there might be millions, millions and millions of people coming out. They went into Egypt as a family, and this is the, the real transformational thing here. They went into Egypt as a family, but this is now a nation, a people group. Do You see the transformative work of, of Jesus here. This is the same thing that he wants for each of us, to, to, to go from something small and simple And to make it into that oak of righteousness by the waters of life. The last thing here is God's response. And this is where we're going to end. God's response. He reminds us of a few things here. The first is there's a distinction in our purity in verses 43 to 45. Just like he said in chapter 11 that there's going to be a distinction between Egypt and Israel. He's making a distinction here. And he's saying the same thing about us in our world, the church in this world, there's a distinction. And what are those di- distincting uh, 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 factors? The things that we talked about before, holiness, we're called into that. We're called into to a life of righteousness. We're called into a life of abiding in his spirit, of trusting in him, of being in fellowship with one another, of, of acting like Jesus acted but through his spirit. And these were the things that he was doing for Israel. In verse 46, it says that this was the one thing, right? There was nothing else. It's once for all. This is just one sacrifice that was needed. From now on, it's just supposed to be a remembrance. It reminds me of Hebrews 10.10, 10, uh, where, the, where uh, God says, And by that we, will have, we have been sanctified, meaning through Christ's sacrifice, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It doesn't need to be done again. It's over. It is finished. There's finality. Also in Romans 6.10, Paul writes, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. That's the same life we're called to, to live for God. It's also unaltered. They weren't supposed to be mixing it with other things. They weren't supposed to be adding anything to it. In, In Joshua 1, when they come in to, uh, were prepared to come into Canaan, um, he's talking about the book of, of Moses, and he says that the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. It's about this purity of mind, too, not adding anything to the gospel. Jesus is what he is. You accept him as a whole, not in part. It also reminds me of Joseph of Arimathea when, when uh, after the, the death of Jesus, Pilate was in possession of Jesus' body, and Joseph went to Pilate and asked for it so that they could bury it. They didn't want it defiled, they didn't want it hidden, they didn't want it uh, put somewhere else where it couldn't be found. They wanted to honor it as it was in all of his bloody mass. They wanted it honored. In verse 47, we find that's also inclusive. Again, he's laying his foundation for the church. There's, there's a lot of times where, where the Old Testament will reference the word like assembly or congregation. And in the, the Greek, Septuagint, it's usually the word ecclesia, which is where we get ecclesiastical or church. So he's, he's laying down his foundations for his church in this, rooted on the sacrifice of the Lamb, Jesus himself. And lastly, there are requirements to partake, as I was mentioning before. Two of them, really. One, you have to be circumcised. What does that mean? Because I'm pretty sure Paul taught in Galatians that it's not about circumcision. I'm glad you asked. Because in Deuteronomy, which is in the Old Testament, by the way, we want to think of God as all gloom, uh, doom and gloom in the Old Testament, fire and brimstone. But here's what he says through Moses. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. This was the same thing that Pharaoh was fighting against. He was choosing to be stubborn. He didn't want his heart circumcised. In Jeremiah 4:4, as, as the people were preparing to go into exile for all their sins, Jeremiah writes, "Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts." And lastly, one of my favorites, and this is the one that I came back to uh, when I was incarcerated. Um, because it spoke so much to me. Joel 2.13 says, rend your hearts and not your garments. It's not supposed to be for show. This is deep. And lastly, there's, there's a oneness that, that we're called to, a unity in the body to Christ. In uh, One of the songs of ascents in Psalms 133 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And Paul writes in Colossians 3, Above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. God's calling us into that unity in his son, in the sacrifice that he laid down. So as we look back over all this stuff that we just went through, um, there is a remembrance. I think that's the most important thing that I want to really focus on is there's a, there's a remembrance, remembering what the Lord has done for us and who he is, who we were before he collided into our lives and dragged us out of the, the dark depths of our sinful depravity and put us here right now on the rock. Remembering that is important because without that, we forget and we go on sinning. We're acting like we're, we're of the world still. But He's called us to more than that, Father. We we just thank you again for uh, Your Word. It is perfect and um, it does not return void. And just the interconnectedness of of Scripture, um, it is breathed out by You, as You state. And uh, Lord, help us to look forward in hope and anticipation of Your second coming. But help us to remember our past, not in in uh, not in not envy of what we used to have, but in thankfulness for a life that's left behind. Lord, you've welcomed us with open arms into your family. You've called us to new life. You've called us to, to honor you and to be holy because you are holy. So Lord, as we depart here, just uh, store this in our hearts that we can Go forth from here and recall your works to mind, not our own works, Lord, but your works to mind uh, through your grace. And Lord, let it lead to our um, our deeds and our words being honorable to you, being worked for all of your glory, for the goodness of your kingdom, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.